0: This week's program is dedicated to the memory of Richard Benal, my father, who passed away on May 19, 2007. He is missed tremendously, but we take solace in knowing that he's in a better place now. Your host Tim Benal hello there my friends this is Tim Benal of ben of America.com with another edition of Ben of America audio season 2 It is June 2nd 2007 and this week we kick off the final five episodes of ben of America audio season 2 and I'll warn you ahead of time right now I am sick as a dog I don't know what it is pollen allergies or something I'm not sure but I am just run down exhausted that's why this episodes coming at you so late. And that's on top of all this drama that went on here at Benal of America over the past month. I will uh, talk about that in a little bit, but we don't want to take away from the guest, so we'll handle all that business at the end of the program because we have a spectacular guest for you this week, and we want to just dive right into the interview. Our guest this week is Gary A. David, author of The Orion Zone* which investigates the strange correlation between monuments and settlements of the Native American Hopi tribe and the stars of the constellation Orion. We're going to talk about the logistics of that connection, how and why the Hopi settled the way they did, their god Masau, who just may have been a gray alien, the strange race of ant people who helped the Hopi throughout their history, the lost city inside the Grand Canyon, the global Orion connection, Hopi Prophecy for the Future, and much, much more. It is an astro-archaeology-themed in All of America audio, taking you to a whole new realm of esoterica that we've yet to discuss here on the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gary A. David, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Gary A. David has been intrigued by the Four Corners region of the United States since his initial trip there in 1987. The following year, he sojourned to northern New Mexico, where he studied rock art and indigenous ruins. In late 1994, he moved to Arizona and began an intensive research of the ancestral Puebloans and their descendants, the Hopi. This resulted in his book, The Orion Zone Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest, published in late 2005. His articles have appeared in Ancient American and Atlantis Rising magazines and are forthcoming in Fate and World Explorer magazines. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Kent State University and a Master of Arts in the Literature of the American West from the University of Colorado. He is the author of a number of books, including A Log of Deadwood, a Postmodern Epic of the South Dakota Gold Rush, and *Tierra Zilla, Poems and Petroglyphs from New Mexico, both available from Amazon.com. He is also editor and webmaster of Island Hills Books, an online publishing house, distribution center, and showcase for literature that focuses on the spirit of place. David has worked as a college instructor of English and creative writing, a traveling ambassador for the South Dakota Arts Council, and a professional lead guitarist and vocalist. He currently lives in rural northern Arizona, where, thankfully, the skies are still relatively pristine. His website is www.theorionzone.com, T-H-E-O-R-I-O-N-Z-O-N-E.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 27, 2007. Gary A. David, talking about The Orion Zone on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Our guest this week is Gary A. David, the author of The Orion Zone, Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest. A very thorough and interesting book from Adventures Unlimited Press. He's here to talk to us this week about The Orion Zone and and, uh, delve all into that stuff. So welcome to the show, Gary David. Thank
1: you, Tim. Thanks for having me.
0: And, of course, you can pick up the book at adventuresunlimitedpress.com and find out more information on Gary and the book at theorionzone.com. Those are the websites. Check them out. Uh, Let's start out first, Gary, with your bio, your background.
1: Okay. um, I got interested in uh, Native Americans um, uh, quite a while ago. Um, I lived for about 15 years in South Dakota and uh, taught on Pine Ridge Reservation, taught English there. And uh, got involved with uh, the Native American community, and uh, attended some of the ceremonies, uh, witnessed a Sun Dance on uh, Pine Ridge, and uh, also did some uh, sweat lodges and so forth. And uh, just got fascinated in in the Native American culture. I grew up. Uh, in Ohio, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, really the only Indians I knew about were the Cleveland Indians, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you went, when I came out west here, it was a totally different uh, mindset. Uh, and uh, I lived, like I say, in the South Dakota for 15 years, and then um, I moved down to Arizona, and um, I, I've lived here now for about 12 years. Uh, so, um, And I started um, going to the Hopi Reservation, and... Seeing uh, some of the uh, the ceremonies there, the, sp- specifically the Kachina dances on uh, Hopi Reservation, and uh, started going there, and um, went to a lot of the ruin sites uh, in the region, um, the Anasazi uh, ruin sites in the area, and just uh, got fascinated with the culture.
0: You say you're, you're fascinated with the culture. What drew you to uh, this this uh, this Interesting line of research, I guess, tying the, the, the stars to to the uh, to the elements on Earth. Okay, what what um, sort of opened would, your mind to that idea?
1: I was I was driving up to one of these Kachina dances um, in northern Arizona, um, uh, east of Flagstaff, and the Hopi have settled on three primary mesas. Um, the first, second, and third mesa is is how they designate them, um, and um, I was looking off in the distance. And uh, looking at these three uh, three large mesas that uh, they've built villages on top of and at the base of, um, and I had just uh, read Robert Buval's book, The Orion Mystery. This is, I read this back in 1997, um, and um, I, I started thinking about well, you know, uh, there you know there was an Orion correlation on the Giza plateau, the three major pyramids. Uh, at Giza were uh corresponded to the belt stars of Orion, and um, I, n- I noticed that uh, these three mesas up there, they were equally spaced. Um, they're about seven miles apart, and they run from east to west. I thought, well, well, perhaps the, uh, there's an Orion correlation right here in Arizona, and um, I kind of put that in the back of my mind, and uh, when I got home, I got out um, got out my maps and got out this, uh, the sky charts and, you know, what I found just uh, just astounded me. It's just amazing the uh, correlation between the villages, the ancient villages of the Hopi, and the stars uh, of Orion. They're, they're basically, there's a, an ancient village or a ruined site corresponding to every major star in, in the constellation Orion. So uh, it's even more of an exact uh, uh, copy than uh, the one at, at Giza. So it's just... And then I, start, I started in from there to, uh, to research um, the sky-ground correlation.
0: And, and as you note in the, in the beginning of the book, the primary, I guess, uh, genre of research that the book is, is astroarchaeology, which is a, a, a burgeoning new field. Uh, talk a little bit about astroarchaeology, what it is, and, and how you go about uh, using different elements in, in, in studying that sort of thing.
1: Well, um, the, the Hopi were very tuned in and still are very tuned in to um to watching the sun, in particular, and uh, the way the sun rises on the horizon, and it's kind of their their uh, agricultural calendar. They, uh, they see where the sun rises um, on the horizon. For instance, uh, on the vernal equinox and autumnal equinox, the sun rises due east and west on the horizon. Um, as you, you get uh, closer to uh, to summer, the first day of summer, the summer solstice, the sun rises a little bit um, more north on the horizon each day. So, and then there is a final northern position on the horizon, um, and uh, it happens to be uh, 60, 60 degrees azimuth um, at this latitude, but. Um, uh, the Hopi were very concerned with uh, you know where where on the horizon the sun was at a given time of year because it gave them a sense of um, where to plant and um, um, when to plant, um, and uh, a lot of their buildings are aligned to these uh, these um, summer solstice, especially the summer and winter solstice sunrise. They're very important uh, points of the year, and a lot of their buildings. Ruins are, are aligned to, uh, to these uh, points on the horizon. Um, the, uh, the major ruin of uh, Chaco Canyon in New Mexico has uh, a lot of these uh, alignments. The buildings are aligned to uh, uh, various points on the horizon that line up with the sun at a given time of year. So it's, 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 a, it's kind of a very important uh, part of their cosmology.
0: Talk a little bit about the Hopi people for listeners who really aren't aren't up on on the various Native American cultures and what have you. Uh, talk a little bit, uh, you know, like about the Hopi people and what made them different from the other Native American tribes, because it did sound like from reading the book that they were dramatically different in a lot of ways from other Native Americans.
1: Oh uh, yeah, the Hopi uh, are an agrarian sort of people. That that is, they uh, they're they're basically farmers. Um, they're sedentary. They built uh, large villages. Uh, the uh, for instance the uh, the lakota which i talked about before in the south dakota they're a uh, more nomadic uh, nomadic tribe and uh, but the hopi uh, had villages and uh, they established these villages uh very early um this uh, for instance this template uh, of of Orion, uh, began about 1050 ad um and um it took a couple centuries for this template to be developed in um, in Arizona, but the Hopi were here um, a, a long time before that. In uh, in more isolated what what is called pit houses, which is are isolated um, structures, not villages per se, pueblo villages per se, but more isolated structures. Um, and and the Hopi, um, their uh, uh, their ceremonial life is very rich. It still is. Um, um, they have, um, it's a constant, uh, cyclic, uh, a ceremonial life that they carry on, uh, to even today. Um, for instance, uh, the Kachina dances, which I mentioned before, they, they start about this time of year in April and, uh, they run through, um, just after the summer solstice, um, in, in July, they, they conclude, uh, the Kachina dances, um, and this, that's when the monsoons come and, and the, the, the major portion of the rains come in, in July. And that concludes the Kachina season. So uh, there's a, a very rich cultural life uh, on the Hopi Reservation that, um, that you can still experience today and, uh, if you go up there.
0: And um, this, sort of, uh, this sort of touches on something that we had uh, in a conversation with a previous guest who studied uh, in Australia and studied the Aborigines who are obviously somewhat along the same lines as the American Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And we talked about sort of overcoming that cultural difference when you're trying to study something in this esoteric realm, because, you know, they, a lot of their stuff is, is, is hidden within myths and legends and stuff stuff they don't want to share with, with outsiders. How did you overcome that, that sort of cultural difference to, to study the Hopis and, and, and find out more about their mythology that sort of laid the groundwork a lot for the Orion zone?
1: Well, the the Hopi are, are uh, very—they're um, not very forthcoming with uh, what they want to share. They're very guarded in uh, in their uh, sacred lore and uh, and their myths. Um, uh, fortunately, there's been a lot of ethnological uh, research done um, in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century that uh, you can you can have access to. As well as you know, on-site uh, field work that you can do at the at the Hopi Reservation, but it's it's always it's always rather dicey to to, uh, to go up there and and try to uh, get information because you don't want to be uh, too pushy or too uh, you know you, you just kind of want to feel out the situation and make sure that you're not stepping on any toes or, or trying to. Uh, to uh, get information that you shouldn't really know about there there's a classified information that uh, the Hopi will not discuss at all so um, it's 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 very hard to go, to go up there and uh, and make your way there because it, just uh, simple things like uh, the schedule for kajina dances you'll go up there and you not really knowing where uh, what village has a kajina dance on a given day and you have to just kind of ask around and just feel your way along and uh, um, I've uh, come across uh, w- one uh, man, a Hopi man in particular who is, is kind of uh, acting as a go-between between uh, uh, me and uh, the Hopi elders and uh, he's discussing this material with with the elders and uh, they're, they're um you know the Orion correlation is is being looked at pretty favorably up there, but they don't really want to come out and say, "Well, yeah, that's it." You know, so yeah. I'm just what I'm doing is just putting the information out there that makes sense to me. This this pattern, uh, this uh, sky-ground pattern, and if you look uh, at the maps on my website, you get the idea that there's something going on here because. There's a village located exactly where it's supposed to be in, in relation to the, to the constellation. It's just it's an uncanny um, correlation between uh, celestial and terrestrial, just amazing.
0: And to sort of delve into that now, I guess the first question, I guess it's in, in a way sort of a devil's advocate, sort of a skeptical question in a way, I guess, but, but it's more of a, I'm intrigued by this idea, uh, do they give a reason for how this pattern came about?
1: Well, the the constellation Orion is the most important constellation ceremonially for the Hopi. Um, for instance, during the winter solstice ceremony, um, it's it's held at night and um, they perform it in what is called a kiva, which is a, a subterranean prayer chamber and you get uh, you get down into this kiva by going down through a ladder in the roof of the structure and uh, there's a uh, there's a hatchway that um, that is open during the ceremony and um, when the constellation orion appears in this hatchway that means that the ceremony should start so they more or less synchronized uh this particular ceremony and and to an extent others uh, uh by the appearance of Orion in when Orion appears in the hatchway of the the overhead hatchway of the kiva. So um ceremony is very important. Um there's a, a major figure in the, in the Hopi mythology. Um and it uh, this figure is, is named Masau. Mm-hmm. Masau is is the god of uh, the earth, uh, the underworld um and um it's the god, of, also the god of death. So it's kind of a, a spooky god. It's a, it's a nocturnal god, one of the few nocturnal gods that, that the Hopi have. And um, Masao is uh, really the um, the terrestrial equivalent of the constellation Orion. Uh, Masao is said to um, travel across the entire Earth uh, in one night before morning comes. So. Uh, you know, Masao is um, a pretty, uh, there's a picture of Masao in my book, and it's, it's. Um, uh, well, I'll I'll just describe it, and um, uh, this god, and see what you think. Uh, this god has a very large round eyes, and a, a large round mouth, and it, it's a bald, it has a bald head, um, and it kind of resembles a summer squash in a texture. And, and the forehead bulges out, and the, the feet are very long, and the arms are very long. And the god, uh, uh, the, the root word MAS, moss means gray. So uh, the root word of Masao means gray. So, you know, Masao uh, seems to me to look like very, very much like a, an extraterrestrial gray. Now,
0: what about the logistics of – this is where I'm, I'm going sort of with the with the devil's advocate form of question, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, mm-hmm. What about the logistics of actually, you know, designing a whole society uh, around the Orion constellation? Is that something that could have been done from Earth, uh, from, you know, from people who lived on Earth and, and, and just based on what they could see in the sky that they could logistically design something on Earth? That mirrored what was in the sky. Like, is that even possible, or would it require uh, some sort of help from outside? Well, um, I use the term loosely. the <laughs> the, the,
1: uh, the way the way I think it happened, uh, I think Masao, this god, directed where to build the villages. Masao was there at the beginning of uh, the Hopi migrations. The Hopi made many migrations for centuries around the American Southwest. And they would go to a, a place and build a village, and then suddenly, uh, for, for, for no apparent reason, would would um, would leave the village and abandon this village and go on and, and build a village in another spot. And I think the god Masao was, was um, directing uh, this template, uh, the construction of this template, which, as I said, began in about 1050 A.D. and co- concluded a little bit after 1300 A.D., um you know the, the god messiah was there at the beginning of the migrations and then when the hopi uh, you know finally um, settled on the the three major mesas he was there to assist them and uh, taught them uh, farming techniques and so forth so the, i you know this god um, may i think um, probably directed uh, the building of this now how logistically they did it um you know if if they were on their own without this god I, I really can't say because these uh, this pattern is so so exact um i really don't know how they would do it um a a, a colleague of mine Crichton miller uh he's you might have uh, read his book about the celtic cross He believes that the Maya had a version of the the Celtic cross and the Hopi had a version of the Celtic cross. And they used these uh, uh, to to, uh, uh, position the villages uh, in in an exact way. And and, uh, in fact, he he thinks that the uh, the pyramids were also um, um, positioned um, with this this Celtic uh, cross and in fact the, the hopi do have a uh, an artifact that resembles uh, a celtic cross it's uh, called a, a monco um, it's a ritual artifact that is, it looks very much like uh, like a cross and uh, like a celtic cross so um, they they might have had uh, help this way it's it's hard to say but, yeah. um, um, but you know I, I, I do think masao the god masao had a, had a great deal to do with uh, the way this this um, pattern is laid out on the Arizona desert,
0: and he's uh, he's a key figure in the book. And and uh, the the illustration that you mentioned is definitely one of the most powerful images in the book. A uh, very frightening, creepy picture of a uh, of, of uh, representation of what he would look like, and. And, wow, one of the things that stands out in the book, definitely one of the things that stands out in the book after you read it.
1: Yeah, uh, well, you know, the Hopi don't like to talk about myself very much. Um, I I took a class with a Hopi woman at uh, Yavapai College, which is in Prescott, Arizona, and – she wouldn't even discuss Masao at all. Uh, you know, I, I ask about this particular god, and she, you know, I mean, it's it's almost like taboo to talk about this god because he is a god of death and, and the underworld. So there's a lot of uh, it's kind of it's it's kind of a a spooky uh, a negative force going on here. What's the
0: religious aspect like with the Hopi culture? He, is he just one of many gods, and and where I guess would he rank in the hierarchy of the Hopi gods?
1: Well, um this god is is a major deity there's also the sun god tawa and there's a uh, spider woman which is a the female figure that uh, plays into my, to the mythology and um, there are, there are a number of hopi gods there's a hopi sky god uh, as well that uh, kind of related to masao but um um masao is one of the one of the major gods that was there at the beginning uh, uh at the uh, creation of the world, and, and helped to shape the uh, the Hopi culture uh, throughout. So it's, it's, a, it's a major figure.
0: And there's a lot of, like you said, elements to their history that indicate interaction between the Hopis and Massau. How much do you think of that is myth and lore, and how much do you think actually was some sort of interaction between, you know, a beyond human being, or whatever you want to call it, and and, and these ancient peoples?
1: well um I think myth and lore uh, is simply a, a, a historical telling of uh, of ancient times you know um, there's a a big tradition of the Kachinas, which is uh, spirit beings which I mentioned before mm-hmm. um, there's a, a definite interaction between the spirit world and and the physical world through these Kachinas or, or spirit messengers and uh, the kachinas, um uh, you've probably seen the Kachina Dolls at uh, the Hopi Carve. Um, there are uh, many different shapes and types and, and uh, the, the masks are all different and the costumes are all different and um, uh, the dances are performed every year um, and the, these uh, dancers dance all day long under the desert sun and it's kind of a brutal uh, uh, test. Um, to, to dance all day long in, in the hot sun like that in the, in the middle of summer, um, but the, the the Hopi do this and uh, the to to honor these these spirit messengers that uh, essentially bring bring uh, fertility and rainfall to the, to this very very dry uh, uh, land. So um, there's a there's a constant interaction between the spirit world and the physical world. In fact. Um, uh, there's almost a reciprocal uh, relationship between uh, the underworld and uh, this uh, earth plane. For instance, when um, the Hopi are doing summer solstice uh, ceremonies, uh, the, the people in the underworld are doing the winter solstice ceremonies. So it's, it's almost a, uh, the underworld is kind of like a mirror of the earth plane
0: just clear up this a little bit when you say the underworld what exactly what's the connotation of that like how would you describe that to to a lay person like me or uh, i don't want to call it like like a white man you know what i mean what uh, what's, what's, <laughs> what's then? The, what can we how can we compare that to something that, that would be palatable to the audience
1: well the the underworld is the place that that um, the Hopi go uh, when they die they don't they don't ascend to heaven uh, like we conceptualize it or western culture conceptualizes it but they go um down beneath the earth and in fact there's a specific spot in the grand canyon that um that they believe they go down into to enter this um this subterranean existence um the the underworld is also the place uh uh, where um there, the, the third world is located. We're, we're currently living in the fourth world, according to the Hopi. Uh, there have been three different worlds, um, and they all have been uh, created and destroyed, and we're, we're at the, uh, the end of the fourth world right now. But the Hopi also conceptualize um, the third world or the previous era uh, being located in this underworld place. And of course, um, the underworld is common uh, among a lot of cultures. Uh, the, the Greeks had, uh, you know, Homer talked about the underworld of going to the underworld. Um, so it, it's uh, common among uh, a lot of cultures that they they go down uh, into the earth, un, you know. And there's an actual, as I said, an actual place in the Grand Canyon called the Shipapu that they uh, go into this uh, underworld place after they die. Um, and, and there's there's a, there's also a representation of this zipapu there's a little hole in the ceremonial prayer chamber the kiva there's a little hole that represents this this uh, almost like a wormhole going to the, to the underworld
0: yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here chronologically so forgive me but uh, that's fine that's fine but, when i hear when i hear your answers then they remind me of other things in the book that i wanted to ask you about that uh, i didn't get into the notes um Talk a little bit about this evolution of the worlds that you're talking about, uh, from the first world to the to the world we're in now. But uh, don't don't dive into the uh, the the end time prophecies type stuff yet, because we'll get to that later. But uh, talk a little bit about that evolution, because from the description of it in the book, it, it sounds like it correlates with a lot of world events that we think we know about from the past. You know, like the ancient floods and, and that kind of thing. So it sounds like, you know, uh, it, it mirrors a lot of what other cultures say about their evolution.
1: Right. Um, the, the Hopi, uh, as I say, I believe that we're kind of at the end of the fourth world. Uh, you know, the Maya call it the fifth world and the Aztec call it the fifth world. But for the Hopi, it's we're at the end of the fourth world. And there are three different worlds uh, previous to this. Uh, the first world was destroyed by fire, and that might be something like maybe an asteroid or, or volcanism or something like that the second world was destroyed by ice and these are uh, these worlds are our time periods or eras um and the third world was destroyed by a great flood so um the hopi have have endured these these um destruction of the world before and and uh, the the virtuous hopi's were reborn into the into the next world uh, there's a, a particular uh, group of um, of creatures um, called the Ant People that that helped the Hopi survive these cataclysms. Um, the the Ant People uh, helped the Hopi survive this first world uh, and also the second world by giving them refuge in caverns or caves. Um, it's it's interesting um, that the the, the Hopi word uh, for ant is Anu, and the Hopi word for friend is Naki. So if you put those together, the Anunnaki helped the Hopi. These ant friends helped the Hopi survive the um, destruction of, of these two worlds. Um, and they, they took them into the caverns and... Uh, and taught them how to, uh, to sprout beans. For instance, there's a uh, a bean sprouting ceremony in February that kind of honors um, the Ant People's um, um, teaching the, the Hopi how to how to uh, survive in these caverns. So the, the Hopi had to survive in, in caves for a long time while the while the uh, the destruction was going on. So uh, it's I, I think it's interesting that the, you know the Anunnaki. Uh, um, the, from uh, Sumerians uh, would would have a resonance with the, with the Hopi people here. Uh, these these ant people were very uh, very important in uh, in um, Hopi mythology.
0: And then before I give you a follow up here on the ant people, is there a way of dating these different worlds uh, that we can sort of like look back and, and try and correlate them with with uh, you know others, other other uh, peoples floods stories and maybe other people's, uh, you know, destruction by
1: fire type stories. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, um, you know, the, the Hopi The Hopi uh, are not that concerned or not as specific as, say, the Maya are as far as, as dating. Mm-hmm. Um, the Maya were, were very, we're masters of time. Um, you know, uh, the Hopi more or less uh, might be considered the keepers of space, Whereas the Maya are the are the keepers of time, so the the Hopi are never really specific about uh, you know dates like the the 2012 date of the Maya. They don't have anything like that. So uh, you you more or less have to to approximate. You know, yeah. You can, you can you might be able to say well the, well the end of the second world was uh, destroyed by ice. This might have been the ice ice age. You know, ten thousand years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's it's hard to say to to pinpoint a specific date uh, with the Hopi. They're just not um, they don't conceptualize the world in in those terms. I don't believe.
0: All right, and um, now to dive into the ant people because that is definitely one of the uh, most fascinating aspects of the book and in, and in the, in the Hopi culture. Do they describe now? Obviously, they must be ant-like because <laughs> uh, that that's what their name is. But what do they describe? What the ant people are like? Are they? is there any sort of specific description of,
1: of what you know your typical ant person might look like well um, uh, the, the, the myths talk about the ant people but um, there are also petroglyphs all over the southwest that have uh, pictures of what I think the ant people are there, there's some some pictures in my book of, uh, describing the ant people and showing petroglyphs photographs of petroglyphs or you know rock carvings of um, these creatures with, like, uh, antenna and and kind of large eyes and, and spindly bodies and so, um, you know, uh, whereas you know the the uh, the myths don't actually describe them, but the 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 rock art in this area uh, you can see a you know kind of ant-like resemblance in this in this rock art.
0: And it sounds like from their past, the ant people had quite an influence on, on the Hobies and helping them out and stuff. Whereabouts in the history of the Hobies do the ant people go away or, or stop interacting with the Hobies? Because obviously, you know, uh, we're not hearing stories nowadays about ant people. So at some point they, along the way, they, they had to go away. So well, what happened to the ant people?
1: They don't really explain what what's happened to them. Um, like I said, they... the the Hopi were helped uh, during the destruction of the first world and the destruction of the second world by these entities, the Ant People. And then um, during the destruction of the third world, which is by a flood, um, the Ant People don't play into that um, you know, that scenario, so um, the Ant People uh, just kind of uh, kind of disappear in in the mythological uh, history uh... after that after the destruction of the of the second world so um,
0: so that's the end of the ant people
1: yeah yeah uh... you know um...
0: and what about like a ge- like a geographic location for um, where these ant people were uh... did the Hopi say you know we were we were here when the ant people helped us and brought us into their camps was is there any sort of area where we we would, we would consider you know ant people territory
1: um, well um they're not specific it's hard to to uh, correlate uh, mythological tales with uh geography mm-hmm. um you know, there are some some caverns um in the area there's a a place called grand canyon caverns uh it's an amazing uh, cave system that uh that kind of empties out into a grand canyon uh there's a a passageway from the cavern system to the grand canyon so um the Hopi might have um, um, been ref- referring to this particular cave system. Uh, there are a lot of caves in Grand Canyon. It's a you know a huge uh, as you know it's a huge uh, uh, geological formation, and there are, there are a lot of caves. And there there are um, particularly salt caves in Grand Canyon that um, the Hopi go once a year. Um, they make annual migrations to the Grand Canyon and collect or. A ritual ritualistic salt from these particular caves in the Grand Canyon so uh, uh, you know there might be something to uh, you know it, right here in Arizona that um, the caves were located and um, of course there's some um, there's also the the uh, story about the lost city in the Grand Canyon um, uh, some some a friend of mine Jack Andrews has written uh, uh, about this he's also the artist who did the uh, the the artwork for the cover of my book but he's also working on uh, a um a uh, book about the lost city in the grand canyon that um um supposedly was um found by a smithsonian um exhibition in the 1906 and um this um this cave system that was in the in the side of the grand canyon um, it's it just amazing uh, the the size of it. It went hundreds of feet into the into the cliff, and and there there were uh, enough room for um, for uh, hundreds of, of uh, people to to fit in this cave. And there there's supposedly mummies found here. Um, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but it's it's you know, a fascinating one that I, I just kind of touch upon it uh, briefly in my book.
0: Yeah, I do have it here in the notes, because I was going to ask you about it. This Grand Canyon Lost City is definitely very fascinating. Um, what else What else can you tell us about it? Uh, you know, dive right into it. I mean,
1: well, they, do we know any it's, more about it? Is it is very close. Uh, according to my friend uh, Jack Andrews, it's very close to uh, where the, the Hopi have this Sipapuni, uh, uh, the emergence from the underworld, okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's actually... Uh, uh, a geological formation, it's a, called a travertine dome in the bottom, a big uh, limestone kind of a dome in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Um, and it's sort of by where the Little Colorado River uh, meets the the major part of the Colorado River um, in, in Grand Canyon. And uh, this cave is supposed to be located very close to this this Sipaponi of the Hopi, which is, you know, a very sacred area for the Hopi. Um, and it's it is also a very dangerous uh, place to go because um, there there were experienced hikers um, uh, washed away uh, oh, a few years ago. Uh, a number of hikers uh, got caught in a flash flood and they were they were just washed away. So you know it's it's kind of a dangerous place to go uh, poking around. So yeah. not many people go down there.
0: And if you went to look for it, is there is there anything like in the Grand Canyon that's like you know sealed off from people where you can't go and explore, or, or is it something that you could actually
1: go look for? Well, um, there there's a theory that that um, the Smithsonian simply didn't want to reveal this information and just sealed off the entrance to the cave and just um, you know you can't find it anymore. Um, and it's it's um it's hard to get to because it's, it's very high up on the cliff apparently, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know there there's a uh, rumors of a cover up by the Smithsonian, uh, so I <laughs> didn't want this you know there is, there's like a statue uh, there's a statue of of uh, uh, kind of looks like Buddha, in in a lotus uh, position, um, inside the uh, the cave and uh, there are these mummies that they found and there was there was um, a dining hall with the utensils and you know it's just this the article and um, the original article that's um um that you can find uh, the newspaper accounts of uh it's uh, just uh, amazing artifacts that were found in this cave in the grand canyon and uh you know the smithsonian were not about to uh, <laughs> to get into this kind of uh, diffusionistic uh uh, concept. They they wanted to keep uh, you know Native Americans on this continent and no no uh, interaction between other other uh, cultures in ancient times. They they wanted to uh, to toe the line in that regard.
0: Yeah, maintain the status quo. Right. Yeah. And how did this story even come out in the first place? You you allude to an, there was just an article uh, somewhere and then what happened? Then no one ever. There was no follow up or anything, and they were like, w- w- "What are you talking about? That kind of thing."
1: Well, yeah, there was uh, this uh, expedition uh, described in this newspaper article uh, in great detail, and you can find it uh, on the Internet, just Bloss uh, City of the Grand Canyon. You can Google that and then find the article. Um, and uh, there's, uh, you know, Ancient American Magazine has, has done uh, uh, articles on, on this particular uh, cave in the Grand Canyon.
0: And do the Hopi, I presume they know about it. You said sort of near uh, where they go to, to uh, ascend or descend to the underworld. Are they like, yeah, that's this place that we know of, or are they sort of like, you know, don't want to talk about it, or have they said anything about this lost city?
1: Well, more or less um, from my information that I haven't been able to find out anything specific from the Hopi about this particular cave. Um, they're just not talking about it because it is uh, such a sacred area, um, and they don't want a lot of people going down there and, and, and you know, uh, looking at trying to find this place. In other words, because it is a ritual, a ritualistic area that they that they go to um, every year, and that they, they don't want a, a lot of non-Indians trying to <laughs> invade the place. You know? Yeah, hope Hopi are very um, circumspect and they're 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 very polite and courteous, but they're they're not very forthcoming in the information that. Um, that they divulge. Um, some some Hopis now are, are, are thinking that, that it, is a, it is a time to uh, to divulge this information. Uh, it is the end of the fourth world, and uh, a lot of the ceremonies that the Hopi are doing are are, uh, are they're they're becoming uh, not as strong as they used to be. They're uh, performing fewer and fewer of the of the sacred ceremonies every year and the traditional culture is being uh, uh, eroded by you know, the contemporary uh, life. Um, a lot of uh, Native Americans are leaving the reservation and, and finding jobs in cities because there's really uh, no economic uh, growth, in, uh, at least on the Hopi and, and uh, the surrounding Navajo reservation. They don't have casinos or anything like this that a lot of the tribes have. So. You know, the, just the pressures of modern day life is is causing the Hopi to uh, to uh, leave the reservation and leave the ceremonial life. So, uh, a friend of mine said, a Hopi friend of mine said that he he expects that the, the the Hopi ceremonial cycle will be will probably be dead in about fifty years, and and uh, or maybe sooner than that. Wow! So, uh, and you know, it does it doesn't look too good. You know, once the once the Hopi um, stop performing their ceremonies, uh, there's a theory that the Earth will be thrown out of balance because they're not performing these ceremonies anymore. Yeah, and um, and uh, the, all the Earth changes and so forth kind of point to the, the fact that the Earth is is out of balance, and the Hopi are trying to desperately to to. Uh, uh, live by the old ways and retain their their ancient language, but fewer and fewer Hopis are learning the old, you know, the, the ancient Hopi uh, language, and it's getting harder and harder to, to carry on the ceremonial life.
0: Yeah. Now, what about the the Egyptian connection sort of here with uh, with their Orion co- uh, correlation? Seems like uh, like you said, the, the Hopi connection to the Orion is even stronger than the Egyptian, but it does uh, lend credence to some kind of uh, did they, they were on the same page of some kind. We're not sure exactly how. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What, what's going on there? Uh, how did that come about?
1: Well, I think that uh, there, there's a, a, a global Orion uh, legacy that you can find uh, Orion correlations all over the world. Uh, since I started to uh, do the research on this book, and, and uh, it took me about seven years to, uh, to write this book, but I've found other Orion correlations um, all over the world. Uh, there's one, for instance, at Teotihuacan in Mexico. Um, there's one uh, near Milan in, in Italy. Uh, A colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Nisbet, uh, found one in Scotland, an Orion correlation in Scotland. Wow. Uh, Another colleague of mine, uh, uh, Rob Milne, is doing uh, excellent work in South Africa, finding a lot of Orion correlations down there with um, uh, petroglyphs and so forth. Um, So there's, you know, Graham Hancock in his book Fingerprints of the Gods kind of suggested this, uh, that there might be uh, a, a global Orion uh, legacy passed down from an ancient uh, civilization. That might be the, uh, the root of, you know, why these uh, Orion correlations are popping up all over the place. Yeah. You know, he made, he made the uh, observation that the, um, the, on the Nazca Plains in, in per- Peru, the, there's a great spider that's supposed to represent the constellation Orion. And he, he, at that point uh, in the book, he, he said that this perhaps signals some kind of uh, global cult uh, in ancient times uh, dealing with Orion.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where the next question I have for you is going to go, is that um, of, of these sort of different scenarios, have, this is speculative, of course, which do you think is most likely, uh, a global culture, or do you think each of these small cultures were influenced by the same gods, or maybe just that um, almost kind of like a combination of the two where the original, the original small, like the very first people on Earth were influenced by gods, and then that sort of uh, spread throughout the world, hence the uh, Orion correlation. Those seem to be three different possible scenarios. Which do you think is the most likely?
1: Well, I, I believe that um, in terms of the Hopi, they were directed by this one god, Masau, which uh, may have had a physical presence, at one time uh, among the people, that it's not just an interdimensional spirit. In fact, uh, the Kachinas, which I mentioned before, um, they say now that the Kachinas just come in spirit uh, because the Hopi and, and mankind in general is so corrupt. But in, in ancient times, the Kachinas came as physical beings and interacted with the Hopi people as as physical beings. So um, I think that it, uh, there might have been uh, early on in ancient times there might have been a, a physical interaction between between the people um, which they perceived as gods uh, and and uh, the, these creatures, uh, what, these entities, whatever you want to call them.
0: This whole discussion really kind of dances around the big the big uh, esoteric. Um field that's sort of been growing in the last uh, 50 years or whatever, um, and that is the ancient astronauts sort of idea. And, and, uh, and, but in the book, you really, uh, you sort of imply that, but you don't really dive right in. It's not, you know, I wouldn't say, like if I was telling somebody about the book, which I am, I guess, because <laughs> we are doing a radio show, um, uh, I wouldn't say, the, the book isn't an ancient astronauts book, really. It's more um, uh, an astroarchaeology book. But you seem to endorse kind of the idea of the ancient astronauts. So, um, what do you think? I guess is the question I have for you. Is well, I try to go by the
1: by the evidence that I have. I'm not going to make uh, wild claims about ancient astronauts. I do have uh, a picture, for instance, of what I think to be a, a, of a flying shield, and there are uh, there are myths. Um, uh, well, this is a, I should say mention that this is a, a petroglyph of a triangular flying shield in the in the book and there are there are stories and legends about you know flying shields in, in hopi culture and um you just kind of wonder uh you know wh- where is this coming from this um um for instance there's there's a story that's it's, uh, a nice story that i li- like to uh, relate it's um a story about um the um there was a, a great flood, which I mentioned before. It, it concluded the uh, third world. This great flood um, was engulfing this village, and uh, everybody ran out of the village. And uh, these this uh, brother and sister, they were twins. They somehow got left behind. So they tried to they tried to find out where the parents had had gone uh, from because the flood was was uh, about to. Uh, uh, engulfed the village so uh, they they started out and um they uh, they they met up with um this creature that came from a flying shield okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: this this creature came down and uh, they call it the the sky god so so is is the term uh for the sky god and the god um it, it um this god had a costume which sort of looked like um they called they described it as uh, looking like icicles you know clothing that looked like icicles hmm. you know for for a, a non-technological society this might be uh, the way to describe a metallic sort of uh, uh clothing or something yeah. but um this god took the the two children up into the, in this flying shield and they were uh, above the landscape and uh, this this God was a, a benevolent God they um, they, they treated uh, he treated the children with um, uh, melons and, and corn and fed the children and and he said that the, that he would return this God would return in their dreams to instruct them about the ways to uh, to lead a, a good life and then the the God brought them down um just outside where the parents had had gone had fled and so the the children were deposited there and they could uh, uh, be rejoined with the parents so this is this is a you know just a, a myth or a legend that I hope you have about about these uh, flying shields and about uh, this particular god that that helped these these children out so um, you know um, he, you wonder what to do with this kind of material, you know. You see uh, pictures of flying shields and, and petroglyphs, and you, see, you hear stories about them. Um, so uh, you just, I just kind of bring that up. I don't try to, to make any assertions, uh, uh, the Von Donegan, uh theory and so forth. I don't, I don't go that far. But I, I do just present the information and evidence as I see it, and uh, I, I let you know, readers make up their own mind about uh, whether uh, whether this is extraterrestrial influence or not.
0: And actually, uh, I, I was I, I'll salute you for that because um, I didn't want it to come off the the wrong way the earlier the other way I phrased it. But I, I think that's a good thing the way the way you frame the book because you you provide the evidence that that you know someone else could come up with a really flimsy book but uh, base it entirely around the ancient astronaut UFO um, Mm -hmm. gimmick, if you will. And, And they wouldn't have the wealth of material that you have in your book, which really provides a lot of evidence for the ancient
1: astronaut ideas. So I appreciate that. Well, it's just just a beginning. uh, I'm doing another book right now and and continuing on the research uh, in the same vein, and hopefully I'll come up with uh, some more uh, definitive um, thoughts and and theories about this. But uh, this is just an initial kind of uh, uh, exploration of the material and the uh, the Orion correlation theory, basically. I wanted to to bring that out in the book.
0: And that's always sort of a, like a sticky situation in and of itself anyway. I mean, I, I would presume that the Hobies, they're not down with um, the idea that their gods were actually ETs, but are there any any people in the Hobie community that are like, you know what, yeah, we kind of, in this modern day and age, we've kind of come to the realization that maybe the people that were coming here were ETs and not, not uh, you know, that, that they just didn't know how to say it in the way back then.
1: Well I, I think that there, there is a, a, a very strong tradition of star elders and influence uh, from from the skies. Um, that's it, part of the, the Hopi culture and it's, it's uh, not seen as something foreign. it's just part of part of their cosmology. And um, uh, they're used to thinking in in terms of of sky gods and and star elders and so forth. So it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's just the way that we interpret it today is uh, um, as as being these ETs. But uh, as I said, you know, Masao. uh, there's evidence that, you know, he, he looks, there's a picture of it in my book. Uh, Masao looks very much like, a, like an ex, extraterrestrial gray. And the root word, uh, moss, it means gray, so there must be uh, something to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, actually, that they'd be more open to, uh, you know, if the ETs were to come down here and, and tell us that, you know, that they they were the gods of lore throughout all the ancient religions, they'd probably... Sounds like the the Hobies and some of the Native Americans would probably be more open to that idea than than oh, more Oh, absolutely, religions.
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, we sort of touched here on the Hopi prophecies, but let's sort of dig into that now because there's always uh, there's a lot of talk about Hopi prophecies nowadays. It seems like we're it seems like everybody seems to think we're we're living in the end times, and as you said, the Hopis seem to think so as well. Um, what what gives them that idea that we're at the end of the fourth world, and and what does that uh, forebode for us?
1: Well, um the the um the elders uh have prophesied a lot of these earth changes that are coming about they um they foretold the the coming of uh, of um telegraph lines for instance they call them spider webs uh, metaphorically uh, across the land um telephone lines or that um uh, they uh, the elders foretold uh people driving on black ribbons uh, with uh, horseless carriages on black ribbons, you know this was uh, this was before you know, automobiles came about, you know. And yeah. but they foretold these things, and uh, they also uh, talked about a gourd of ashes uh, falling on the land. This was, uh, you know, the, the atomic explosions at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, they talked about um, the time when um, women will will. Uh, Take on uh, men's dress, so forth, and you know, with the women's liberation movement, and so forth. So you know, they they talked about a lot of these uh, things that are coming to pass, and a lot of the earth changes that are now happening. They they already foretold that that would happen. Um, they basically say that in the in the very end times, um, a figure called Pahana will will return. Pahana is. Um, Kind of uh, like uh, the Maya Kukulkan or the the Aztec Quetzalcoatl, that figure of, of serpent that that um, the plumed serpent mm-hmm. that um, was here and then um, then went away. Uh, Pahana was here in the beginning with Masaru and and um, and the other figures, and then uh, he. Uh, what happened? He took a piece of a stone tablet. He took a corner of a stone tablet, the, the Fire Clan tablet you know, specifically, and he took a piece of this. And he said, "At the end times, I'll return with this piece and match it up with the tablets you have, so you'll know me by the fact that I have this this piece that matches up with this um, the rest of the tablet." Um, he's supposed to have a kind of a red uh, cap or a red hat um and he'll come with with two helpers um, the one helper will will carry um, a Maltese cross and a swastika uh, and the second helper will will carry a sun symbol uh, the Maltese cross you can find uh, Maltese crosses um, in petroglyphs across the American Southwest you can also find swastikas um, in in um, in this rock art in, in the uh, southwest so uh, these are not um, these are not the, the Germanic uh specifically Germanic symbols they're uh, Native American symbols uh, that uh, have been used for for many years by by the Hopi people.
0: Now you said he took a corner off the off the tablet. Is the original is the original tablet uh, that he took the corner off? Is that around anywhere so we can if he shows up with the corner?
1: Well, it's oh. being kept by uh, the, the Bear Clan the uh, keep, uh, uh, keeper of this uh, particular tablet. So uh, um, they they um, it's on the Hopi reservation somewhere, uh, being kept in secret. So. When when uh, Pahana returns, then uh, and uh, shows this corner of the tablet, then uh, that's that means that the end end time will come and the the purifier will come from the west and uh, and it'll be uh, it'll be bad times. <laughs> yeah, and and
0: so it's it's in existence. It's not on display yeah, or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, in fact, uh, there's a, an author named Frank Waters. He's he wrote a kind of a classic book called Book of the Hopi. He publishes. Um, uh, what these bear clan tablets looked like mm-hmm. um, there there was also another anthropologist really only uh, two uh, non-indians have seen these tablets uh, so they're, they're they're kept in secret uh, more or less and they're, they're not casually shown to to um, the world
0: I'm surprised they'd survive so long
1: uh, you would just
0: think that sort of thing would get you know lost uh, sort of like the um the holy spear or something like that something you know well it's
1: it's a very sacred uh, artifact and it's kind of like the um, the the uh, the original sacred pipe of the Lakota Sioux it's it's still being kept uh, in secret and uh, you know it's it's just a a ritual artifact from from ancient times and it it, uh, it'd be very very disastrous for it to just disappear.
0: Yeah, but you know how it is with war and, and that sort of thing, uh, especially with the encroachment of the uh, of the white man and, and all that sort of thing. you think that that would be the kind of thing that would have gotten lost in the shovel? but it's good to hear that it's still in existence.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. What makes
0: them of the opinion, though, that we're at the end of the fourth? Like, uh, what is there any specific sign that they have designated that now they know for sure that we're, or, or those are the sort of things that you said, like the black ribbons, and what, what earth changes are Are they? These all? They they lay it out in like a chronological order, type of thing. Where now are we supposed to be looking for anything in the on the horizon here that would correspond with Hobie prophecy?
1: Well, they've they've said um, um, constantly that there will be um, famine, floods, earthquakes. um, You know, just disastrous kind of changes that we see uh, taking place right now. Um, Again, there's no specific time frame involved um you know the maya say 2012 well that may or may not come to pass but the hopi um they're they're just saying well it'll it'll come uh, very soon they're not saying exactly when it's um it's it's rather up in the air right now Uh, like i say the the ceremonies are uh, are becoming uh, less vibrant all the time uh, on the reservation and there are fewer and fewer people doing these ceremonies. So, this is another sign that you know, when the people don't learn the language, when they they're not doing the ceremonies anymore, then the then the fourth world will uh, will come to an end.
0: And from the descriptions in the book of uh, how the the endings of the other worlds, it sounds like that that's sort of what happened in those worlds too. You know,
1: the uh, and, and, and uh, you know, there there is some some hope for. For the the next life, the the people are supposed to uh, come through this uh, these hard hard times and then go into a into a better world where you know the the people will uh, eventually reassert themselves as as uh, spiritual people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, hopefully we'll make it through. You and I and <laughs> <in> the <laughs> those of us non hobies. Um, you allude to you're doing some other work here. What's uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Obviously, you're you're doing a lot of radio shows and stuff to talk about the Orion Zone and, and doing some um, uh, extensive other research. Uh, what do you have on your plate for the future?
1: Well, I, I I'm working on another book uh, about this material, extending the material and uh, trying to find definitely you know uh, whether uh, whether there's some extraterrestrial intervention or not. Uh, to be more specific about that but it's basically a, an extension of, of what i've started in uh, the orion zone
0: um and what about uh, any speaking engagements or anything like that you want to you want to mention or plug
1: well you can go to my website uh theorionzone.com and find out a lot of information there are a lot of essays uh on the website there are um, there's a, a section of rock art that you can uh to check out and um uh, there's some um, a lot of maps like I say on the website so you can get a better idea um, of what the book is about by checking these out and uh, you can also order the book uh, the orionzonecom uh, or adventures unlimited press.com uh, either place there you, you can go order the book
0: well Gary thank you very much for coming on the show like I said the orion zone is the book it's very thorough it's just rich with detail Um and and definitely uh, makes me want to go out to Arizona and check out some of these landmarks and stuff like that. Uh, Definitely a a trip I want to make in the future now, having read the book. Just give me
1: a call, Tim. We'll we'll take you out there.
0: Definitely, definitely. It sounds like it would be quite an adventure. Um, The book is, of course, like I just said, The Orion Zone. You can find it at adventuresunlimitedpress.com, and, of course, you can find out tons of information. I'm glad Gary mentioned this because the orionzone.com website is just an amazing hub of information, Uh, that you can find from the book that is just, you you just dive in there. You'll be in there for for days, hours at least, Um, checking out theorionzone.com. That's the website. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of All of America Audio. Big, big thanks to Gary A. David for coming on the show. Of course, you can find out more information on him at theorionzone.com, www.the.com. O-R-I-O-N-Z-O-N-E dot com. Moving right along now, we're going to skip over the listener feedback portion of the show, and instead I'll give you, the listeners, a little feedback of my own. For starters, I want to thank all of the great people who wrote to me over the past two or three weeks here, not just after my father had died, but uh, for that period when he was in the hospital and and, uh, slowly dying. I just got so many emails, a lot of you I haven't even written back yet, it's just hard to rehash that sort of thing, and, and, uh, but I wanted to thank you all uh, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate it. This has been an emotionally, spiritually, physically exhausting experience. Tomorrow, June 4th, will, uh, it'll have been a month since we brought my dad into the hospital, we actually brought him in on the 4th of May, and he uh, was comatose from uh, about the 6th up until the day he died on the 19th. So this has been a long, long process, and uh, as many of you know, he was a victim of cancer, and, and he was fighting the disease for uh, two and a half years, and it was a struggle. It really was, and for the last eight months, uh, I've been here full-time pretty much, helping him out and, and taking care of him with my mom so it's uh it's been a difficult situation here in the aftermath of his passing uh i feel empty like uh there's a hole here and i'm not really sure what to make of that i just i feel a little lost i'm thankful that we have the audio show that that i have been all of america.com because that at least can keep my mind off of things for for a little while and and so that that's pretty good and I'm doing alright, I mean, as I've noted to a lot of people that my father's health really went downhill starting in January. That's when things really, really started to take a turn for the worse, and he was really deteriorating pretty rapidly from there. And So as much as I wish he was still here, and, and as much as I miss him tremendously, I'm happy that he's not in pain anymore, because he was in constant pain, and uh, and I'm happy that he's in a better place, and I know I'm going to see him again, so it's all good. <laughs> It's really difficult for me. I never really opened up here on the program about my personal life here at home. Most, if not all, of the listeners, aside from some of the long-time but all America readers, had no idea that uh, my father was sick. So I'm sure it came as quite a surprise to you. But I was ready for this, and uh, as my, as ready as you can be, I guess, is the expression. And and so we're we're going to persevere. We're going to move on. We're going we're going to keep going here. Uh, I'm not just going to shut down the radio show because my dad died. Uh, I wouldn't do that to to the listeners here. We have a plan, and that is to get through the month of June, and and then that'll do it for Season 2, and then we're going to move on to Season 3. We're going to stay the course here, so you don't have to worry about that. My dad was a great guy, folks. If you go to banalofamerica.com, there's a little in-memoriam tag in the left-hand side of the screen, and... and, uh, if you click that, there's uh, the obituaries there, and you can find out more about him. He was just a great guy, and, and his influence and fingerprints are all over com. not just in the name of the website, but in my writing style, my sense of humor, my honesty. That comes from my dad, and uh, he played a part in of America whether he realized it or not. And uh, his influence is felt uh, every day, I think, at the website. I could ramble on here for a while, but uh, I'm going to just say uh, thanks again to everybody who wrote in your condolences, and your prayers, and your thoughts, was hugely appreciated, and, and just really, uh, really had uh, an effect on me. Thank you so much again from the bottom of my heart, and my family thanks you too. Of course, I want to thank the great staff of BenallofAmerica.com: Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna. These folks are awesome, and they're like family to me. They stuck with me through this more than, than I ever could have expected of them. So I appreciate that so much. Uh, it's not just about the paranormal here. Uh, we're, we're a team, and, and when one of us is hurting, the rest of the crew is hurting too. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate their outpouring of support during this really difficult time. They've assured me they're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere, but all of is going to continue. You don't have to worry about that. We've weathered the storm here as best we could and and now I think it's time to you know sail into some some more uh, peaceful waters if you will so check out banalofamerica.com every day with new columns, updates, satire all kinds of stuff there's something new at banalofamerica.com every day and most of the time that's the result of the fine work of the staff of BOA: Leslie, Chiron, Arlee, Joe V and Tina Senna. huge thanks to them for everything if you're a long-time But All of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, now more than ever, your support is needed. Suffice it to say, I am waiting in a lot of serious responsibilities now that my father has passed away, and money will definitely become an issue in the, in the not-too-distant future. So whatever you can do to help support the audio series and the website will help stave off that impending financial crisis that we're trying to avoid. How can you do that? You go to banalofamerica.com, you click the PayPal button, and you make a donation. No donation is too small, and all the donations are going to go towards paying for America.com and BOA Audio. Next week on the program, we're going to have Chris Stiles, the principal investigator of the Shag Harbor Incident, October 4th, 1967, a UFO touched down into the Shag Harbor. Chris Stiles saw it. He was just a little boy at the time. 25 years later, he decided to investigate the Shag Harbor incident, and he's pretty much the guy who put the Shag Harbor case on the map of ufology. We're going to dig all into this tremendously strong UFO case. Why Chris decided to resurrect the Shag Harbor incident and how he went about digging into this UFO case. We're going to go in-depth on just tons of details on the case. The skeptical Father Gaffney testimony of the divers who searched for the UFO, what people thought the UFO was, and how that was contrasted by the government's interpretation of events, how Shag Harbor changed UFO history in Canada, and just tons and tons more. This is a very richly detailed edition of Benall of America Audio. I taped the interview yesterday... So it's quite fresh as well. And that's going to be Chris Stiles on Banal of America Audio next week to talk about the Shag Harbor incident. And on that note, we close out a tremendously depressing edition of Banal of America Audio. And hopefully the mood will be a little bit brighter next week. With the exception maybe of uh, the last episode that I did when my dad was very sick and uh, the writing was on the wall as far as his impending death. With the exception of that episode... This may be one of the toughest episodes I've ever had to put together. And hopefully you didn't mind uh, that I bared my soul here for you a little bit. We'll survive,
2: folks. We're going to be all right. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim all signing off.